three, two, one. Hi, this is Josh, and this is the fourth episode of the Status Dramaticus podcast. So, as promised, I have a guest with me. I have Cody. Cody is a medic since 2012. He's been working in multiple systems. Um, today, he's, he has a home. Um, <laughs> but we'll call it that. Yeah, we'll call it that. <laughs> but uh, I want one thing I do want to say is, Cody, like uh, I've worked with you before. Um, I think you're, you're a very solid medic. Like you are not afraid to go through the whole treatment modality for anything. And I think a lot of times that's an awesome thing to be like, especially in situations like where you need mag sulfate, that type of stuff. Yeah, definitely. You know, we give protocols for a reason. Yeah. You use them. That's right. Yeah, we're giving drugs. Use them. We're here to treat people. <laughs> yeah. That's my mindset. That's what I always remember about you. You had no fear about, you know, treating to the to the most of your ability there. And uh, well, I guess that's a good segue, too, because um, there was a letter from MIMS that came out, right? Yes. It was, okay. came out on yeah, the 6th of April. Okay. And this was in reference to terbutaline. So a lot of you providers out there know that terbutaline went away for a little while. But now it looks like it's made a resurface, and maybe this has something to do with the aerosolization during this COVID thing with albuterol treatments. So just the quick run rundown for that, it's a grouping mild, moderate, and severe distress. The mild distress, uh, they're just talking about a meter dose inhaler, four puffs, repeat in five puffs, max dose, eight puffs. Um with the terbutaline in itself, it makes an appearance in the moderate distress category. If it's 12 years or younger, you're not doing terbutaline. You're still going to remain with the IM Epi. With 12 years and older, you can do terbutaline, 0.25 milligrams IM. Is that is it IM? Yeah, it's IM. I just want to make sure. If need be, you redose in 15 minutes. Okay, good. Total 0.5. All right, so the, yeah, your max dose is 0.5 milligrams, and in severe situations, it's epi or terbutaline. And then there's always the uh, precaution that if they have a known cardiac history, that maybe you would want to deter from the uh, the al or epi. Right, correct. And we get that at severe condition. You're getting a nebulizer still in. Throughout this whole letter, MIMS references the respiratory stress protocols. So. It's not saying replace totally replace protocols, but definitely heavily consider it this way. I think it's a good idea. I mean, I, I we were talking before this podcast about there's a lot of people out there that missed a terbutaline. I think you were one oh, of them. Definitely one of them. <laughs> <laughs> that was an everyday thing for me, man. It's a nice treatment uh, option when you have it available to you. But so that's our update. Um, what the topic that we really wanted to get into is something that you care a lot about, Cody. It's the uh, humanizing the call, I think, is the way that you put it. Yeah, that's about the best way I could come up with describing. Pretty much came through this, you know, being my own maturing as a provider and just seeing how people interact with others and how we treat our patients in the field and to an extent, I guess, in the hospital. I can't really speak too much for that, but I kind of get the feeling it's kind of the same in both places. Yeah, I think I think there's a mix. Um, there's some people that just aren't, you know, well versed in communication with other people. I mean, that's no matter what job you're in. Yeah. And then there's the other thing, like sometimes you've been doing the job a while, you get a little complacent. 
Or sometimes, God forbid, you you get a little uh, crusty. Yeah, that's <laughs> but it, there is something to be said at, at maintaining some kind of demeanor for for your patients. So, what I did want to ask you is, um, what what was it that got you so interested in this topic? I think just me growing as a person and changing my perspective on life, and then you know doing things that. Looking back now, I don't agree with how I treated somebody, maybe as a patient, or just trying to break maybe some stereotypes. Because from day one as a provider, I've always been breaking stereotypes of maybe how I treat people or, you know, equipment that I may choose versus others. And I think this kind of developed out of that mindset where I think sometimes we don't necessarily treat people the best in this field. And, you know, we should be treating people a lot better. Yeah, I agree with you. I I think it's tough in an emergency sometimes because there's tensions running high, um, but also the importance of like remaining calm calm and trying to get people on the same page as you. Because we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. Like the common person has no clue what we're talking about when we say turbuline. No, (laughs) or a 12 lead. Or a 12 lead. (laughs) I mean, for that matter, even EKG, sometimes they're like, what does that do? Right. But uh, that's that's a tough call sometimes too, because sometimes I think um, how literate as a culture should we be in healthcare matters as a as a society? I think that's a really good <laughs> debate for a whole other day. Though, really, <laughs> yeah. you know, like most people come out of high school with like a semester of health knowledge, and it's all based on drug abuse and STDs. Yep, that's and right. That's it. And we kind of broke the drug abuse part. It doesn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> yep, absolute abstinence and complete prevention, you right? Ask any like dispatcher, like what they're getting calls for nine one one for. It's definitely not nine one one calls. Usually, like, it's nothing important, right? It's just the basic mindset, and we don't teach people, you know. Yeah, and I think that's that's tough. So, what are some ways that you would go about um, or emphasizing how to talk with patients? So I'm going to preface the rest of this. So like. This is probably going to be a somewhat of a controversial little bit of issue because it's, again, it's different than what I think EMS is used to. And again, probably emergency medicine in general, we're not necessarily used to this. Yeah. There's some people who do it well. I can think of mostly their doctors and a couple of medics who are just super compassionate, empathetic, and sympathetic to people, but they're also good at what they do. Mm-hmm. And then there's some people who are just phenomenal with medicine. They just treat people horribly. So, again, like I think that's kind of like where we're at mostly is like maybe we're not treating people horrible. We're just not treating them as good. So basically I think the big things I was looking at for was compassion, empathy, and sympathy, just different ways of thinking about it. Okay. Um, one of the things I like, got some notes here was often we go to like calls on the ambulance and we have like this weird authority attitude, you know, like we go to these overdoses or these assaults and it's like, you know, we want to be stern to like, you know, make sure, you know, that we're going to be taken seriously. But at some point we start getting confused for cops or any kind of law enforcement in the jurisdictions. And, you know, we really aren't an authority. We're there to be sent what another medic told me once for uh, Switzerland, you know, we're there to mitigate an issue, not create more issues. And often we have this authority attitude where we're creating more issues and we're talking down to people. Uh, and then if we have to transport somebody like that and you've already talked down to them, they're not going to trust you. No, that's a, patient trust is a huge thing for better outcomes. That is a very good point. And I, I've thought about this in the past about um, the basic or stereotyped medic attitude. Oh, yeah. And sometimes I think 
it, it develops out of necessity. Like you have to be confident because it's like you and your partner. And if you're the paramedic, you got to be like the top dog on scene and you have to be pretty deliberate in what you decide. Otherwise, if you're wishy-washy, people aren't going to listen to right. what you say. And I think that's accurate, like 100% accurate. Like, you know, you got to be the top dog, but I think a lot of times it's taken too far where like, you become such a top dog, you're like barking at people. And it's like, whoa, what are you doing? Like, right. you can have a sign with, you know, the fire service calls a command presence without talking down to people, you know? like leading through your actions through calmness assertiveness but calm and still just talking to people like they're people that's well again like a lot of this comes down to right it's talking to people like they're people not a number right yeah and i think it's even more important because there's a lot of people that have access to health care but you're not going to get through to these people if they have a bad taste in their mouth after this interaction oh, yeah. that comes from the nursing side um ems side all of it so um, it's just interesting how it's a, t it's a very hard situation. So let's say someone's having an MI. Okay. How would you go about or what are some examples of how you would walk someone through this? I think a lot of it off the get-go is generally anybody who is an EMS has a first due area. Generally, anybody in the ER has a general patient population. If you're in some inner city, you know that maybe the general patient population might not be as intellectual, or it might be if they just don't know like about how healthcare works. Whereas if you go to a place that's a lot of nursing homes or has a little bit higher intellectual population, they might be able to grasp these high higher terms. So saying things like a twelve, we're going to do a twelve lead. You say that somebody who has no clue they're talking about, you might freak them out. But I think most of your population is going to know what an EKG is at this point. And if they don't, you know, you can even take a more basic level and say, like, well, what we're going to do is put these stickers on you, and it's going to take, you know, this classic 12 pictures of your heart. Mm -hmm. But when you say that somebody who has a little more education on them, you know, that might actually be offensive. Right. And some people really get offended by that. You know, if somebody gets offensive, they get angry. If you're having a heart attack, that's going to cause more stress. Right. Or if you're trying to tell them we're going to do this 12 lead on you and we're going to look for this uh, ST elevated MI, you know, they're like, what is that? That's, that's, what's that? I'm so confused. I'm lost. Or, you know, they're going to, you're going to lose them and not know, um, they're not going to know what you're talking about. Right. So that you might lose their trust even on that level. Mm. I, I'm definitely guilty of saying 12 lead. I'm definitely guilty of saying EKG. But then a lot of times the patient will correct me and be like, well, they'll kind of bring me back down to earth with it. Yeah. They'll just say, oh, what are you, what are you talking about? What right. are you doing? And I always say, I'm taking a picture of your heart. Yeah, I think that's a good way to go. <laughs> like, I think if you go EKG, it's kind of right in the middle. And then like, you can kind of let them figure it out. They can kind of like say, all right, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, all right, I need to get a step further. Or, all right, I kind of insulted them. You know? But even honestly, even saying taking a picture of your heart, like – irks me in the back of my mind because I'm like, that's not really... It's well, not what it does, but... Oh, electrically. And then they're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's a lot of things. People get back to the top dog mentality. We want to be the top dog at what we're doing with our knowledge to the point where we forget we have to explain things at a lower level than what we're used to. Like, I agree, conversation before this, we were talking a little bit higher level of knowledge that if maybe even somebody who's like a... About to pick on the ENTs, like an EMT, they might not get it. 
right? You know, we're talking, we're using these bigger terms that we, you and I get that are accurate, but then somebody who doesn't have our knowledge base, they don't understand it. And that, so maybe this humanizing job even goes to that level is where you got to know who you're working with. I mean, my job, I work with a lot of, you know, volunteer firemen, paid firemen who don't necessarily understand what my job totally is. They think I just load people in the ambulance and go. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm not quite a doctor, not quite a nurse, but I can do some cool things, right. you know, right. and try to explain to them, here's what I need you to do to help me, you know? Yeah. And that's another testament too, is in our field, there's a, a good chunk of us that are constantly trying to learn more, trying to get better, trying to do more, right. trying to be capable of doing more. And we're always pushing for more things, more knowledge, more skills, that type of deal. But it's a recognition that not everyone in the field is like that. Right. And, you know, part of the thing, human, this concept of humanizing your job is not just like knowing your patients, but knowing who you're going to work with. Because you're working with the same people over and over again. You keep having this like top dog attitude, you know, you're just this total authoritarian, you know, you're not exactly a team player, you're just a boss and not a leader. People eventually start looking down and they're like, wow, we don't want to deal with this guy. Or they're gonna be quick to like do the bare minimum to help you and boogie out of the scene. So it's like you've already lost your audience right. with the people you work with, and then if you continue that, you're gonna lose your audience yeah. with the people you and, treat. And people start memorizing when certain people work. People know our shit. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's true. Patients too. <laughs> and and really, and even even when I was in EMS, your partner could make or break your shift. Like oh yeah. How enjoyable your shift oh, could yeah. be. I've had some really miserable paramedics that wanted me to I want to turn my paramedic card in from them. And like <laughs> I've been blessed recently, the past couple years have some really great partners. I have a really awesome partner now, so it's great. And the hospital's a little bit different, but it's still the people you're working around. Like my job is better because of the people I work with in the ER. Oh, I agree. Even when like coming to the field, if I hear certain doctors on the radio, I'm like, oh, we're going to one of these days. <laughs> <laughs> There's how we're going to be. Because even some doctors don't necessarily know what a paramedic does, you know? Yeah. And, oh, that's a good point. That's a very good point. And if, I think a lot of paramedics feel like we get talked down to sometimes. Because certain doctors don't necessarily know what we do. And maybe they don't have the time to figure out what we do. Or they just don't care. And I feel like if we have that mindset, then definitely, you know, your general firefighter or your CNA or whoever else is below a paramedic. They probably have the same mentality about us. And actually that was – Because we don't – a lot of us don't care about other jobs. What you're saying is ex- one, of the, one of the reasons I started constructing a list for why I wanted to do this podcast. Because what always bothered me and to this day when I was operating as a paramedic is when someone would just call me an EMT Ugh. or a transporter. Yeah. I don't know why it always irked me. <laughs> so much. But Sometimes they could definitely <laughs> use the ambulance driver to your abilities. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you can use it. You can pass off, <laughs> seemingly right. pass off some that you didn't know something. Right. But the other side of it too is like I I worked for that, like, and I'm yeah. trying to be better at it. I would like you to acknowledge. And now I've kind of grown out of that, even with the nursing I think side. That's a growth to growth. I think we all go through that. And it's like, <laughs> all right, I was like definitely flown. I'm the I'm the paramedic car. I've earned it. And it's like right. All right, time to be a little more humble about it all now. <laughs> it was hard in the beginning because oh, yeah. I had to, you know, work hard to pass yeah, all the tests. You should be proud of all that. Yeah, absolutely. Eventually, I think we all get to a point where we start losing pride and we start becoming arrogant. Right. And humility speaks volumes for people. But I think that's the arrogance is easy to spiral out of control if it goes unchecked. That's why uh, you need a good partner. I think yeah. they can set you back down. And then also like this self-awareness, but... 
That's, they need to fail a couple of times. Yeah, like failure. You can't learn if you don't fail. I agree. And with you that. also have to be open to learn, though. Mm-hmm. That's something I've preached to calling a few parent students in the past. Is how are you going to learn if you don't let yourself fail? Right. You're not learning if you're just always doing good. And I think that's just a generally tough thing with our with anyone. Humans. Yeah, with humans. We don't like failure. And we don't like feedback all the time. No, we don't like feedback as well sometimes. <laughs> but what we'll say about EMS is there's and and just nursing too, or any medical job. There's so many different ways to do things. I always did really appreciate a preceptor that was always able to say, you know, that's your way to do it. There's nothing wrong with doing it that way. Good for you. I think that's a good point to bring up I would not even really think about for this, but you know, a lot of people don't want to be preceptors in EMS, so they don't want responsibility, whatever that is, really is, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a good preceptor can really make or break somebody's career from the get-go. And if you have a preceptor who's like, this is my way, do it my way, and like doesn't let you learn. Right. Or it doesn't teach you good habits of like talking to people like they're people, treating people. Like maybe we're not going to yell at the guy, we just Narcan. Right. Maybe we're not going to necessarily go fist to fist with a schizophrenic who's having an episode. Like – you know, you know, teaching you alternative ways of dealing with situations that might actually be better, you're going to start learning bad habits otherwise. Right. And, you know, somebody who could foster you will make you better in the long run. No, I agree with that. It's how do you emulate that behavior and how do you pass that on to the next person? You know, I, I, can, I think that's a, that's a hard question. I think a lot of because of maturity, like, you know, it's sometimes it's hard. It's like, you start realizing, all right, you're getting called like my biggest thing. I was being called like arrogant, or like that was the biggest thing. Like it's like, all right, I'm not being arrogant. I don't want to be arrogant anymore. But I was told I was being condescending to EMTs. That was a good one. Got my actually, my girlfriend said that Oof. before we were dating. We were just occasional part part time jobs. You're really condescending sometimes. It's like, wow, that hurts. <laughs> That's condescending. I'm like, wait a minute. She's being condescending because I'm condescending. It's like this whole it's a vicious like, cycle. It's a weird cycle. It's like. Wow, she's not wrong. Like, who, if she's telling me this, who else am I doing it to? I and mean, it's like that's where like my mentality shift changed was just that statement. But you were re- in that moment, you were receptive to feedback. Not at first. Okay. <laughs> at first, I was like, I'm not being condescending. I'm the paramedic, man. I read these letters, you know. And right. it's like, oh, there you oh, go. Right. Uh, I'm a little arrogant. It's the pride with the yeah. uh, the empathy being at uh, heads with each other. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like I said, I think a lot of it it's just maturity and like. Knowing when to say, all right, you're right, I'm wrong. Yeah. You know, and I think that also comes with through like life experiences too, you know. Well when you when you said that I could I can think back to preceptor paramedics I had as an EMT or just riding with them and actually my experience were were really good with those guys. Right. So maybe that actually helped. I could think back go to further. a lot of my better preceptors. I have good and bad. I think we all have good and bad preceptors. I mean right. And the, a lot of people like want to look and say the bad ones are ones they remember the most. But if you can like take what your good preceptors taught you, they're they're good preceptors in your mind for a reason, you know. Whether it's the care or just the way they treated people, mm-hmm. you can use one of them to be the foundation of the provider you want to be. Right. Yeah. Take different elements from people you admire. Right. Because like a lot, there's a lot of good. Like, there's a lot of good paramedics out there who I think could be a, who lack a lot. You know, the compassion part. But then there's some who are super compassionate, but they kind of lost track of the patient care aspect. And then it's like, is there a middle ground? And like, you know, I think there's a hard middle ground. There's only so many in that middle ground. 
Yeah. I can think of like five at the top of my hand right now. It's it's challenging because you when I see a medic or I see a nurse that lacks any sort of compassion, I don't want to judge them in any critical component because I don't know what they've been through. But that's something I think about all the time. Would what would have these people seen? Yeah, and I think it's hard not to pass judgment. Yeah, I agree. Like, but it's human nature. We just want to judge. Yeah, and I mean, judgments are how you make decisions. Like, if right. you just nonchalantly went through life and tried not to judge anything, you're not going to get anywhere. How often have you heard the term? I made a judgment call. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I made a judgment call. All right. I made a judgment call, and, and now like I'm here. for everything. Either in jail or something good happens. Or in ER, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> or be talked about on a podcast. Oh, that's right. That's right. All these stories, and I and I've had a lot of great nursing preceptors too. That, um, you know, they were still very compassionate. They still were, and I think that actually made them better patient advocates. If they saw something not right. They were more likely to speak up. I think advocacy is something where at least like places in like medicine where emergency medicine as a whole has kind of like been way behind them. I think we're catching up to that kind of well these days. Like we have different programs to help look out for people who are at risk population. So maybe some of our advocacy is by force, but I think we're catching up to it a little bit. We're slow, but I think we're kind of trying to get there. Well, it's a little, little cockiness as well, once you get it a little bit more comfortable in your job. Yeah. But yeah. maybe it's not even – it's more like comfort and competency. Right. Sometimes it is hard to say. Speak up. It's like, I don't think this is right. Yeah. Even though it's like, all right, this person's totally not getting either the care they needed here with me or at home or something. But it becomes sometimes the so status quo, you're scared to stand up to that. Right. And I think this is also a, poor, uh, a portion of where a good partner comes in. Yeah. Because kind of like your wife was, or was your girlfriend, yeah. was doing it to you then, like kind of keep you in check, keep right. you honest. It's uh, it's just something that you need to accept to ha- allow yourself to accept feedback too. Totally agree. Yeah. So I think another like avenue which I was thinking about with this whole humanizing is like certain specific populations we don't necessarily treat the best. Okay. And some of this is out again, like recent experiences of mine or talking to other providers. I talk to providers from multiple jurisdictions all the time. I have a lot of friends in where I've got around a little bit. Man, I probably shouldn't be so proud of that. Um, like the biggest one, I think we probably mistreat and don't treat fairly enough that we should probably our select patient population. Oh, that's a, that's a hard one. This could be a that whole is a hard, topic. Psych is, uh, I, I'm look. I'm actively looking for people to talk more about psych because it is such a sensitive and a difficult topic yeah and i i don't think i mean i'll probably have to expert talk on this by any means but i just don't think necessarily we are treating psych patients the best in medicine in general i agree with you and a a thing that comes up all the time uh from the er perspective with uh nursing is the 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 boarding in the er while they're (sighs) awaiting placement and i imagine there it's maybe this isn't kind of those joking things but i can imagine the mindset is like I'm an emergency nurse. This is not what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, and I think I think that happens. But I, th- I do think that a lot of people I work with are, are compassionate about it. But I think the difficulty is um, what is the nurse's ill-defined role with a psych patient? Because most of the progress made with that psychiatric patient 
uh, doesn't necessarily come from the nurse. It's going to come from the counselors, the right. behavioral health therapy, the psychiatrists, that that type of deal. And then awaiting placement because a lot of these facilities, they're, they don't have a ton of beds. Yeah, no, they're stacked. I mean, we have like one we go to occasionally that we take patients to in the ER. You're familiar with, I'm sure. And they're pretty busy. Yeah. It's, people get stuck in these like, Kind of like middle ground places, you know. Yeah, it's even like purgatory. Even, yeah, even <laughs> with the COVID stuff, you're still getting psychiatric patients. I mean, because it's a stressful time. I think I feel personally like there's been a lot more psychiatric cases than really. But, like I feel like people have been a little bit like stir crazy, or people aren't able to get their access to their certain their I was, their care. Maybe it just seems like a lot of the stuff we've been dealing with has been like psychiatric in nature and roots. That's where the roots are, I should say. I guess. And I, I wouldn't. I don't know the numbers, but I, I feel that, you know, yeah. it just seems that way. And it could be also be just perception that like call volume for us has dropped off and the, that call volume has it, you know? Right. Or just whatever you're getting on your shift. Right. I just happen to get all six psychiatric, psychiatric patients. That's right. No, yeah. it makes sense. But the overlying problem with mental health is like, Everyone, in some aspect, especially in an emergency situation, there is a mental health component to it. Oh, yeah. Whether it's the patient or your own, right? Yeah. Actually, you get to worry about your own mental health. Uh, yeah. I, I, that's another thought I have about our jobs. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, go back to like just the actual psych page, one of the things I think we fail them on is, at least at EMS, is I think we treat most of our psych patients kind of inhumane. Okay. Especially like, you know, we look at them like, all right, maybe they're not a true clinical emergency. You know, because EMS is not actually treating us like best in psych. So we're not looking for all these psychiatric things. So we're not thinking, all right, we need to be able to pay attention for these acute changes in them. Or when we get them, they're combative mm-hmm. a lot of times. So what do we want to do a lot of people? Because we have this authority mentality, fight back. Is that really what's best for the patient? Is that even humane? Right. So, you know, like I said, a lot of people like have this like ability or this mental thing where they just want to fight people back. It's like you're trying to fight somebody who's seeing things that you're not even seeing sometimes. That's They're not true. even playing on the same ball field. It's, is that humane? Or even an emotional liability like that they have no control over. Correct. Like these people like a lot of times don't have control over it to the point, you know, like maybe they have a recent diagnosis with something and they can't get the access because the healthcare system is so overloaded. So they try to kill themselves by whatever means. And now they're having a psychiatric breakdown. So now they're fighting you. And maybe with, yes, they are under the influence of something. So now you're thinking potentially, all right, are they fighting me because they're a jerk? Or they fight because they're actually having a breakdown. It's probably the breakdown. But what do you have to lose for treating them as having a breakdown and treating them as a psych patient versus just a jerk who doesn't want your help? No, that's a good point. Well, someone called 911 to begin with, and a lot of times it is that patient. I, I, I preach this to my partner. And I mean, he's a little newer, so I guess I have a little more leeway. <laughs> but you know, I'd rather people – At eight years, that's a, that's a good chunk of time yeah, there. that's a little bit. <laughs> Compared to some people who are like there like 45. Well, now. we should clarify eight years as a paramedic, even longer. Yeah, years. longer than that. <laughs> now we're splitting hairs. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. But I think it's almost better to just, if you kind of assume somebody is kind of like a true psychiatric episode that's rooted in psych, you're probably not going to miss them having a psych episode. If you think somebody who's having a psychiatric episode is rooted in just being a jerk or being drunk or something like that, and you just treat them like that, you're going to miss psychiatric patients. And again, the psych patients are often missed. We know that's like documented. 
And then what happens is, you know, we get these people who are just super, super combative. And we tie them down and we don't do anything else. And then what happens? We have accelerating protocols on how to restrain people chemically. Which was a cool thing that did happen. And yeah. that was a couple of years ago now. It's really came to light probably in the, nationally within the past five years. I mean, five years ago, we were slamming five and five Haldol Versa. Now it's like, hold off on Haldol, baby. Mm-hmm. You know, and try to give some Versa, then maybe some ketamine or Ativan, whatever your jurisdiction's allowing. And, you know, there's still places that want you to physically restrain somebody, but, you know, not chemically restrain them. So if somebody physically restrains somebody, they're still going to be writhing and fighting a lot most of the time. Mm-hmm. And they're at risk for danger themselves, you know. And, and if our goal is to be patient advocates and treat people like we're going to be, like they're humans, like we should be treating them, we should be sedating them. And this is an opinion of mine, but it's really inhumane to watch somebody just writhe around, try to break out of restraints who is having a psychiatric episode. I think you hit something uh, pretty significant is it's treatment. You are giving a treatment. Restraints is the least, I I can't tell you how many times I've seen that happen and I never feel good about it. I don't personally like physical restraints because it is just inhumane. I feel like a lot of times, especially if you're not going to sedate with them. I feel a little bit of my soul dies anytime (laughs) I have to participate in it. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a, sometimes a necessary to this, to yeah. that in the acute, acute moment. But then if you can progress to the chemical part where it's a little safer, maybe go with like one of your choice of benzo first. And then maybe if that doesn't work, go with the ketamine or something, whatever you have again, you know, I, I like thinking about that too. And this is just another opinion I have is when you have some psychiatric patients coming into the ER, I think sometimes they need that medication sooner as opposed to later. Yeah, it's. I think that's another. I think EMS again. We fail out because some jurisdictions, especially, don't want people pushing drugs. They give you these drugs, they don't want you using them. Yeah. And that's a failure of the system, which creates a perpetual failure of bad medicine. That's a that's a tough one too, because then you have some of these jurisdictions out there that are struggling. So, this is the crazy part about healthcare, and I think everyone's seeing with this pandemic is everything's intertwined. Oh yeah. If the health systems messed up in some way, then it's going to affect the economy. It's going to affect social order. It's going to affect everything. Oh yeah. I, I don't disagree at all. I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm probably a little more liberal. Like I have certain patients who I've seen multiple times who I know when they're about to become combative, mm-hmm. I know that like what they can do to themselves and what they can do to others, you know? So it's like, Hey man, are you feeling this way? And we got a long run to the hospital do you just want to be relaxed and maybe go to sleep for a little bit? We won't even do any needles. We can just, you know, smell this real quick and, you know, boom, okay. five of first set internasally and the big guy's not fighting me or trying to kill himself and back my ambulance. And everybody's safer. Yeah. That's I mean, the sedation, I think people, I think traditionally sedation has been thought of as a provider safety measure. Not necessarily oh, as a thought, not necessarily as a treatment measure, you know, as we're getting these drugs, like, again, like I think ketamine is a big one that we're looking at now is, just because we can use it for pain. We can use it for sedation. We can use it for, you know, RSI and there's places that have RSI that some of these drugs do have multiple different things. And it's not just about safety. It is truly about treatment. And, you know, we in EMS want to be, we want this recognition. We want to be recognized as actual providers or clinicians, what we're kind of using. You see the wording from the state of Maryland, they're using the clinician's word, but we're not doing anything on our own to change that. And part of that is we have to change our minds on how we treat people. I think another big one would be 
this is going to be a really, really rough one for some people <laughs> to grasp. You know, how often do we give Narcan two milligrams in an or more, or we get there and the police have slammed it, and people are screaming out, what did you take? What did you take? What are you doing? What's your name? Like, everybody's, like, assaulting this guy verbally. Like, yo, hold up, man. Like, this dude was just not breathing. He was 75% dead. He had a pulse. That's it. You know, he wasn't breathing. Probably had a questionable airway. He was unconscious. And he still most likely got cerebral hypoxia. So why are we yelling at this guy? You know, and I'm really guilty of this one previously, previous jobs especially, because, you know, you start giving, you know, Narcan eight times in 12 hours. It gets a little, <laughs> I guess it gets, it gets a little old. Again, this is a perception thing. It goes back to the whole judgment concept we alluded to earlier, mm-hmm. where like, you're like, what, what did you take? It's like, well, now I'm thinking like, Dude, we know what he took. He didn't take a benzo. If he did, it's still there, but he took an opiate or opioid. Yeah. Answer that question. The rest of your questions could probably be answered off his ID. He's probably got a license. If not, well, he'll wake up a little more. Get a little bit of oxygen. Like, and I think that's another thing. It's like everybody's so quick to like wake people up who are overdosing. It's like, why don't we try oxygen? Let's treat hypoxia, you know? Let's get some hypoxia and breathe. A lot of times if you start bagging somebody, why are you trying to get an IV for Narcan? little positive pressure with oxygenation does wonders. Maybe we don't need to give Narcan. Not giving Narcan can avoid a lot of problems, you know, with the whole vomiting. I don't like vomiting in the back of a moving ambulance. It's not a good thing. But to me, and I think, again, this is where it gets even more controversial, probably to some people. I view somebody who's post-Narcan and was just post-Dictal. Somebody who's post-Dictal, yeah, they were unconscious. The breathing status is messed up and probably had a question why everybody. Yeah, they had a lot more movement going on but that's not voluntary movement. And they had a pulse. That's about it. You're pretty much 75% dead. Right. There's still a, some degree of cerebral hypoxia. That's why we have post because of all these different, you know, they're confused and all that's this. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. You know, and that's why I say, like, I don't think, I think being post-Narcan is kind of similar. And, you know, we sign up to help people. We don't get to say, and you can even put this into like today's world. We don't get to say, I don't want to treat you for this issue. Mm-hmm. When you get in the emergency medicine, you sign up to treat people of all issues, all, you know, socioeconomic class. You don't get to say. So when you're treating somebody with, who has an addiction, you know, we can think about it. I kind of think like this. Yes, addiction is a disease. It's a disease of choice. However, they didn't choose to be addicted to the point where they're homeless. They don't want that. That's not what they're looking for. It's kind of like, you know, we'd look at like certain STDs, like look back syphilis 100 years ago, or I guess AIDS would be the next closest one. Yeah, we, people make a choice to get to where they're at with these diseases, but you know we treat AIDS patients now a lot better than we did 80 years ago. Oh, for well, sure. Sorry, not, back in the 1980s, not 80 years ago, but like back in the 1980s, there was always this big stigma like, I don't want to catch that. I don't want this. Yeah. Or, wow, they did this activity to get this, and it's like it's their own issue. Now it's like isolated in uh, rooms and hospitals. Uh, I think, and actually I think the person that gets some credit with that was like princess Diana. Cause yeah. she actually was hugging uh, these AIDS patients. Right. So like there was like a stigma. There's always again, like syphilis and AIDS, I think are the biggest ones. Like I think of a modern medicine, like there's these certain stigmas and maybe even like, I guess TB patients back in the day, you had your old school TB wards. Uh, I think the TB patients are kind of like your psych patients these days, you know, we, we should shove them away and just, Say hope for the best. <laughs> and again, like I think syphilis and AIDS are kind of like that. We used to say hope for the best. And now it's addiction where this addiction, it's like, oh, that's not my problem. Hope for the best. It's like, how about we like try to take care of these people? I mean, I social meals are the place. I don't know if everybody remembers the show uh, Jackass. Yeah. There's a 
Brandon Novak was all in there. And, you know, he was a, always on drugs. All those guys were on drugs. A lot of them came out of just okay. Brandon Novak was probably the biggest junkie on the show. You can follow his progress on Facebook. Now he's a counselor getting people out of addiction. The guy, just 37 years old, just got his license. He's a productive member of society that so many people would have discredited if they saw him on the side of a street overdosing. That's the, the counselors in themselves. When we were talking about how EMS and maybe an emergency medicine were not the most uh, empathetic, but pretty much every counselor I've ever seen has that has this lasting empathy. Yeah, and that's again, it's hard because like so many of us, like I'm probably not the best one for addiction or psychos. I've pretty so far, not going what obviously, I've done pretty good in the psychiatric department on my own. You know, mm-hmm. I. I don't have any addiction crises, thank God. You know, like I don't want those things. So maybe I don't have the best, you know, I can't empathize with them. Because, We're just two dummies talking about our perspective. Right. <laughs> like I've never been there. I've never lived that life. I've seen a lot of it. Yeah. It sucks. Like I don't want to live that life. But I've seen like what it can do. But then also it's like people are coming out of this, you know, like, and they can be productive. It's just, you know, maybe we aren't going to be the thing that changes them. But there might be one person who we like, all right, man, like, look, we just saved your life, you know? And like a lot of times, like, you know, like back to the whole, like when we you know, Narcan someone, one of my things, I'm like, Hey man, here's what we did for you. Like I explained the 75% dead concept. I'd like to do that one. I was like, see this bag valve, this, I was holding this to keep you alive. I was like, your are I was your lungs. Like I, this is what we did to keep you alive, man. Like it's a miracle you're here. It's not just, Hey, we give you this drug. We shoved it in your veins and your nose, and now you're here because you did a stupid mistake. It's like, dude, that's very sur- that's a surreal. Like you're messed up on this. Like, gave someone. Yeah, it's like sometimes I'll even like say, here, hold this. This was your lifeline. Like, it wasn't just me because I was bagging. It could be anybody who was using this bag valve mask or this, uh, you know, this breathing device, whatever. Want to say to the person, you know, it's this is you know what kept you alive. This is some oxygen. But that that's also a good point too. So. What I want to bring up is continuity of care. So if you're like that and you do everything right, you're empathic, and then as soon as they get to the hospital and you get some other provider that just oh, so hard does a 180 on them, you're just going to lose them and even even the person that was initially empathetic to them. And, you know, that that's a hard one. You do see it, but I think the ER has been doing good that a lot lately. But anyway, lately it was like, like the last five years easily. <laughs> Like from the time I started in the county I work in, from the various other agencies I work for in the county to like where I'm now, it's like the nursing staff has changed mentally. And now maybe they haven't changed physically, but mentally they've changed. I think I think everybody we got to this peak in the opioid crisis, where everybody was like angry at everybody. It's like all right, we can't just be angry. It's not good for anybody. And it's like all right, we can get through. We got through that. We can get through this. It's like they are people. You know, like I said. We just talked about this earlier. Like we haven't, I haven't really given Narcan in like forever. Not that I want to. Talk about an epidemic too. Like look what happened. Look what changed with the opioid crisis. Yeah. It used to be those signs out front of the uh, trooper barracks. Yeah, like, I don't know the last time they were updated either. Yeah, but the, that used to be for vehicle collisions. Right. Now that's completely changed. Yeah. And, and that's just another thing. It's like that whole epidemic. I mean, I think we're still like in places dealing with it. I mean. I think you hear about a lot of it, like out of Philadelphia and other like places, and even within the state of Maryland, like there it's still a thing. I think we're just kind of lucky where we're at because of our socioeconomic status. And I think yeah, like if you remove yourself from this to go somewhere else, you go, again you have to realize where you're working. It changes. 
Mm -hmm. You know, you get a higher percentage of certain calls dealing with certain things yeah. in a different area. Yeah. If we get back to you talk about continuity of care, I think it goes back. I'll tell you with precepting a little bit. You know, as a preceptor, I precept a decent amount of students. My goal is always to get these people to kind of like figure it out their own, but also kind of like th throw things in that I like them to do. Like back to Narcan, I don't like nasal Narcan. I think it's horrible. I think it's especially when people are doing like polypharmacy, it can really get you in a bad spot. Like if you give you know IV Narcan control their breathing, you're more likely to you know not have them withdraw in the back of you or get combative. A lot of times somebody's combative, it's because they did coke or something with it, you know. But you know what? When you when you say that, that is the approach with Narcan. The Narcan is just like, oh, this person's unconscious. Oh, Narcan, just right. do it. Just do all the Narcan. Right. And like I've had actually debates of this on calls with in other jurisdictions where I was working part time in a uh, county that has a county based fire department. I got a fight with a. Uh, area supervisor about giving nasal Narcan. I was like, if you want to give nasal Narcan to the guy who is obviously overdosing but has a uh, meth pipe right there, you're taking the call. I'm not taking this call. Huh. Like, it's that's not like we have a polypharmacy issue, like, especially talking about like meth or like something like that or crack. Like, you take away that uh, opioid downer concept. Now, the all have is a stimulant plus the adrenaline rush from being Narcan, which that was a thing in colleges was just overdosing but the adrenaline rush was a thing for a couple years apparently so you add that on top of that like it creates a bad situation that becomes dangerous you hear about like everybody used to be scared of giving narcan because they're getting combative well that's because people are mixing drugs it wasn't just because you give too much narcan i mean also individual differences as well. there are some individual differences but usually like, a lot of times that comes back to you give too much narcan too fast and to a patient who probably should have had low dose narcan you know like the point for this is one of the there's sometimes where I get to disagree on the protocols. I think everybody disagrees on certain protocols. This is one where I think a lot of protocols in a lot of states get it right. The whole titrating to effect of Narcan. Because everybody's like, oh, it's also just this drug that has no side effects. And it's like, no, no, malignant hypothermia is a real thing as well. And CHF is a real thing with fentanyl now, you know? Right. But also there's a misconception about how fast it works. And sometimes oh, yeah. I think that's part of the issue is that someone will push it. And they're like, oh, it's going to be like bringing up the dead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh, I'll be back in a minute. It's like, no, nasal Narcan takes five to ten minutes to work. They came back up in two minutes because you backed them. Mm -hmm. That's what did it. It's oxygen. Or, I mean, that's the reason you see it's not giving an arrest anymore because what do we need to treat more? Hypoxia. You treat the opioid overdose, doesn't do anything for them. At that point, it's a hypoxia thing. Yeah. And another thing I think about this whole like opioid overdose concept is I think you still see it as the fact people in the field don't check glucose sometimes. I don't think it's as bad as it used to be at all, but you'll still see times people just don't check a glucose. And it's like, sometimes diabetics kind of look at somebody who just did heroin. Yeah. They're clammy. They're pale. They're not breathing sometimes. I remember coming up as a EMT and like every time a glucose wasn't done, it was like a guarantee to be yelled at by a nurse. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, I think that's what, honestly, I think that's what broke it there. Everybody was like, why did you do a glucose? It's like, oh my God, stop. <laughs> Like even on chest pains, why did you do glucose? Oh my God, stop! And then, but that being I had a personal said. experience with it. I was like, okay, I should take a glucose on this patient because that's their sugar was forty, and now they don't have chest pain anymore because they have D10. But <laughs> even even with continuity of care, there's always going to be someone that's going to say, "Why did you do that?" <laughs> and I think this is like a whole. Or why big, didn't you? Yeah, <laughs> I think talking about the Narcan is a good segue into this. Back to like the whole we talked about MIs earlier. Is you know Maryland pushed out to break it to me gently for a rest mm. years ago. I remember about that. About five years ago. Maybe Al Quarter was still running the show. And you know, that was only for telling people how to tell 
telling providers how to tell family members their loved one died. You know, I don't. I still think we can do a lot better on that because some people don't like to be blunt. I think it's something we can take this, bring it to me gently, and expand it in the field. Is just be blunt with people. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't hide what's going on. Like, sir, you are having a heart attack. You know, if it's a questionable MI where you're like, all right, this is a heart attack, but maybe their symptoms don't necessarily fit it. You tell them they have a heart attack. They're preparing for the worst at that point. Versus, uh, you know, I don't think I think the EKG is not really showing much. Blah 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 blah. Next thing they know, they're like. Holy crap, why am I dead? <laughs> I'd rather give me a little heads up on that one, you know? Yeah, really. Well, you know, back to like the overdoses, you know, we keep talking about how to treat people. It's don't say, What are you taking? Blah blah blah. It's like, hey man, look, I don't I don't know what you took. I have a general idea. Here's what we had to do for you. You overdosed. Probably didn't mean to. If you did, we can discuss that. We can get you avenues for that kind of help too. You still need to get help for your addiction, but you know, I'm not mad. I didn't do this. I did this right. myself. I'm here to help you. I'm here to help people. You know, that's my goal. But, you know, I don't, you're not, there's no reason to scream at them, you know. Right. It used to be every, every overdose call I would get, or even treating an overdose as a nurse, like I always try to tell them, like, I'm not here to get you in trouble. Yeah. I just want to make sure you're okay. And that goes back to, the, I think, definitely with EMS as the bridge between law enforcement and the ER, because we do wear the same uniforms as cops. Yeah. We, especially with the advent of EMS wearing vest, good, bad, or indifferent, you know, there's multiple ways to look at that. But every day, it look more like law enforcement. And so many people have, you know, felt like this authority attitude with that. That that just carries over to ER sometimes. I think maybe that you don't mean it to, but the patient thinks it does. I do feel really cool wearing a vest. We can talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel really hot. <laughs> That's true too. Midsummer with a bulletproof vest on. Yeah, it's I think the issue with humanizing the calls is I'll start wrapping up a little bit. Is the thing about why don't we want to humanize? It's because we were trying to like avoid our own vulnerable mentalities. You know, PTSD is a big thing. I was listening to a paramedic before I came here talk about how there's a certain county around here that in the past five years had like eight people with 15 plus years of the job kill themselves. Yeah, that's that's uh, all this stuff does take a toll on you, you know, and. It's sometimes people want to think that we can avoid it by humanizing the job. You know, I was always told growing up as an EMT when I was a little EMT, like in high school, I was an EMT. It's like, just don't get too attached to people, man. You know, just keep on. There'll be more. There'll be more. There'll be more. And it's like, so, you know, I'm not talking to people in the back of the ambulance. And it's like, all right. All right. And then like, I got my first kid die. I'm like, holy crap. That's a rough one. That's a rough yeah. one for a lot of providers. And I think that's where everybody gets their first major holy crap. It's like when they see a dead child. If there's a uh, guarantee to see someone cry, it's those events and if they are rough. Yeah, if you're with a provider who's not crying when they're doing CPR on a, on a uh, child, either they've done it way too many times or B, they're not a good person. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah I've seen some tough. really hardcore, crusty medics <laughs> do CPR on a child and cry. And I was like, wow, I never thought I'd see this person cry. Yeah. I One of my favorite providers I looked up to, who is now a nurse, the day I saw him cry, I was like, this is another learning moment for me. He's a really phenomenal provider. He's a goofy guy. You know, he makes fun of his patients, but they love it. Some patients like that, you know? Some patients want to hear music. What's wrong with playing music for the patients? Some patients want to be kidded around with. They want to be joked with. You know, people want to see that you're a person. And so often we don't do that. We have this, like, guard up around us. Yeah. And we don't want to let them into, like, hey, we listen to music. Like you're a person with a medical background. And there's things that you can think of outside of the protocols, outside of 
policy yeah. that you can do to make a patient much more comfortable. The music one, that's a, Music's that's a, a big idea. thing. I try to use music a lot for like, you know, anxiety attacks. Maybe you don't need to go to the hospital. Again, that's another time for another day. But music is a weird little thing that so many people enjoy. It's non-destructive. It's not harmful to you. But everybody has a favorite type of music. Music's been around since humans have been around. It's been around for a reason. It calms us. So there's people that still listen to Danzig to calm down. Hey, man. <laughs> I'll listen to some Misfits. Okay, I, got a punk, I got a punk rock shirt on right now. I just yeah. have a shirt full of baby drool all I mean, over I have friends, like, their go-to when they're mad is, like, Slipknot. They're like, all right, I'll get down to that if I'm a little angry. They're like, I'm like, wow, I'm calm. Some people want to listen to Jack Johnson. Some people want to listen to jazz, you know. Yeah, whatever works. Whatever like, it's one of those weird things. It's like, if you could say, hey, how about put some music on for the ride to the hospital? We call them down. It's like, it's weird. It's not a protocol. But is that treating somebody? Probably. But again, it opens you up because now the person's like, well, what's this person listen to? It forces you to make a human connection that we're afraid to make. And you relate to somebody. Right. We're afraid to relate and make these connections because we're afraid to like, get attached when something bad happens to the patient. Which is rough, too. Damn, don't let that oh, it's, be mistaken. Oh, no, that is fair. It's all rough. I mean, yeah. You know, I have a freaking flyer who I loved her to death. You know, she used to fight us all the time. Not physically, but it's like verbally argue with us about going to the hospital. Like, look, I'm not coming back here and putting a breathing tube in your throat. And she could kick that up and talk to you like that. Like, you know, is that a kind of harassment? Maybe. But sometimes, but some people like that. But that's a, you know, again, knowing who your patients are. And, you know, the day she died, I found a shot. I literally cried. I was like, I loved her. <laughs> like, she was great. She was part of like, there's certain frequent flyers who are still around. I'm like, people get annoyed by. I'm like, well, why are you getting annoyed by this person? They have a legitimate issue that needs treated. They're not really burdening you. If anything, they're giving you like a 25, 30 minute break while you give some D10 or D50. You know? Yeah. And then what do you got to do? You got to make a connection with the family. You start talking to them. You know, when they do die, it sucks. And then maybe that's just a matter of perspective after, after that. Like yeah. you have the perspective, like you were able to treat someone and you did the best of your ability and you cared. Right. And you did this job for how many years and you still care at the end of it. Right. Because I think when I look at like, you know, these, when I first started this, I looked up to the old crusty paramedics who had the, I don't give a frick attitude. You know, it's like, all right. They're the ones I want to be like, now it's like, I look up, I just look up to medics and like, I want to be like the guy who, and like really, I guess it's like now there's like doctors, I guess I look up to at this point, who are like they give phenomenal patient care. But when I want somebody, when somebody in my family dies, I want them to be the one to tell it to me. Mm-hmm. When I need somebody who is in my family who needs cardioverted, I want them to explain it. And some of that comes with rapport. Yeah, patient rapport is like I think this kind of is like a big whole discussion of patient rapport and like just using good patient rapport. Yeah. No, that's a big thing. Uh, so thinking back to medic school. And trying to wrap this up here too, um, and nursing school, there is this big emphasis to try to teach empathy. You know, there was, and it just didn't get across, did it? No, I just don't. It's a strange thing to have on a PowerPoint slide. It is. Like, I don't think you teach that by book. You have to fire the people who are good at it and like say, like, what do you do, you know? Like, if I was going to do this like a podcast again, I turned like an eight-hour podcast, and the people I'm just like referencing, I'd be like, let's bring these people in. Yeah, let's awesome. bring them in. Let's have a huge roundtable. Let's get some beer. Let's get it going. You know, I am working on getting like a, a mental health person on the next podcast. Yeah, I mean, like, like I said, like it's you know, there's like so much that we have to cram into our jobs. I guess that it is hard to humanize what we do. 
but yeah, we are treating people. We're not treating numbers. And I think that really does get lost. No, that's and like people, you know, point. there's a lot of people who like are scared to help people advance in EMS. You know, like well, there are people too. Right. Your coworkers are people. You know, you have to go home. Your family's people. Everybody, we're all just people. You know, if I get back in, I don't want to be talked to like shit. It's not gonna be a good experience. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you wouldn't either. I mean, it's gonna say a lot for a that provider in the future. And be the employer, and then the medical system they work in. You know, if you have a bad experience one place with one provider, like I can think of places where I've been in my little experiences that I've written on like the firefighting aspect of it and dealt with providers. I'm like, wow, this provider's a jerk. They suck. This must be what everybody's like. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, I know it's not right, but that's what the perception I have still. It's like this system sucks. And and I know these things, and even my so I like to say that. You know, you should bring up people. When you bring people up and you make them better, they in turn are going to make you better. It's grooming. Yeah. But but there are days, and I'm guilty of it too, like you just get so beat up and I think it's worth your attitude <laughs> dampers down a little bit. But it's that's a matter of perspective and right. just trying to keep yourself honest. I think it's a good time to do this. I mean, I wanted to say I wanted to kind of stray from the COVID stuff a lot, but I think it's a good time to have this conversation because – you are seeing people, and if you're not seeing them now, you're going to see them. By the time this podcast comes up, maybe you've hit your peak, but you're going to see it. And it's scary. Like when you're looking at somebody who's rolling down the hallway, coming in from another hospital, like 45 miles away because the hospital's overflowing, and they're like your age. They're intubated. They're not sed- they're sedated just enough to like not care, but they're still sedated enough to where like they can lock eyes here and say, like, they have the help me look. It's like, this is real, man. Yeah, that's, you know, and again, like very surreal. Humanizing yeah. and like this is gonna be hard in a situation like this where it's just gonna be a beatdown. But at the same time, it's like, at what point do you stop caring about people and you just don't give, you don't care, you know? And hopefully, it just never gets to that point. We keep trying to help each other out, trying to help the community out. I think that's something is you gotta help each other out. Yeah. You know, if you see somebody who's not like treating patients right, it's like, yeah, man, like you're great at what you do, but it's like, why are you being an asshole? <laughs> just be blunt it's like yeah just being blunt it's like like if i'll see like if i like show up late i'm seeing someone else hey man why are you like i'll say in front of the patient like maybe it might damage that person in front of the patient and that kind of rude was like why are you being an asshole like what they do yeah like we're here to help the patient or it's like hey man look i know you're fighting with the cops maybe i would too i don't know i don't know your, your situation i don't know what they did but i'm not the cops man i'm gonna make you feel better like, that's what I'm here to do is help you out. That's all I care about. I'll get you away from the comments. I'm like, I don't think that's the police. Well, sometimes just their presence stresses situations out. So sometimes just removing that can help. The quicker sometimes you can mitigate that part of it, you know, it might help you out. About health literacy for police officers as well. We could do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Maybe not we, you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we degrees we'll, on the wall. we'll see. No, don't talk about my degrees on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> It's all just paper. Well, Cody, I want to thank you. This was an awesome podcast. You were an excellent speaker. I did what I could. I would. I did not even expect this. I've worked <laughs> with you before. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, this was the fourth episode of the Status Dramaticus podcast. You can email us at statusdramaticusrnems at gmail. You can check out the podcast on Podbean. And you can check it out on YouTube. We're always looking for more listeners, of course. Build, build it up. Get it out there. But Start also <laughs> looking for uh, people to present things that they find really 
that they're passionate about. Cody found something he was very passionate about, and this is an excellent discussion. Now I have more questions, but <laughs> we can't go for another eight hours, I don't think. Oh. <laughs> My work might not like that. So um, this has been the Status Dramaticus podcast. Thanks you, thank you all for listening. Have a good night. Good night.